Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Genevieve De Los Santos, Director of Special Pedagogic Projects and Assistant Teaching Professor of Art History at Rutgers University. I'm also a member of CAA's Education Committee and happy to be bringing this podcast to you today. Today, I'm delighted to be having a conversation with Ashley Korn from the Smithsonian about teaching women's history and the challenges instructors face both in, in the museum setting and in the classroom. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you for joining. Um, I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you today. Perhaps we could get started um, just learning a little bit more about your current roles and your vision for remodeling the way the museums you're working with present women's history and creating inclusive educational spaces for patrons to learn about a more diverse representative history within these spaces. What is your vision for women's history in the museum? Well, first off, thank you, Genevieve, uh, for inviting me to be a part of this talk. I think it's going to be super rad. Uh, we have a lot to discuss today. Um, but at the Smithsonian, I currently juggle two different positions. I am the Women's History Content and Interpretation Curator at the National Portrait Gallery. And okay. <laughs> I also serve as the Acting Head of Education of the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative. So the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative seeks to create, disseminate, and amplify um, the historical record of the accomplishments of uh, American women. Of course, when we say the term women, we understand um, that gender is on a spectrum, so not necessarily mm -hmm. referring to specifically cisgender women, but women in general. So at the Portrait Gallery, um, I use portraiture to facilitate nuanced conversations about the history of women in America. Um, and as the acting head of education for the American Women's History Initiative, I develop, evaluate, deliver um, the initiative's um, educational programs, um, including experiences, activities, and digital products um, for K through 12 teachers and college students across all subject areas. And what's really interesting about these two positions is that, you know, I'm really working with art and artifacts to examine how gender intersects with race, ethnicity, um, ability and disability, age and class. You know, a big part of the Women's History Initiative which to me is the most exciting is really reframing the way that we learn about, celebrate and validate um, significant moments. And we'll talk a little bit about like what significant actually means a little bit later, um, moments and people. So really thinking about um, what materials we use to teach these stories, how we make these stories accessible, um, but also the frameworks, right? So really thinking about critical pedagogy and this idea of interrogation while you're learning about this information, right? So we're not just thinking about what we choose, but why we choose certain stories, right? How certain stories can tell us more about the complexities of race and, and gender and class, but also really getting to, when we're talking about reframing, right? We're so used to this model of the first woman to do something or like, Susan B. Anthony and all of her crew who helped suffrage, but like not really getting into how complicated these people's values and ideals were, right? And so when, when I wanna teach women's history, I don't wanna teach about a person, right? I want to really dig deep into how complex these individuals are, but to also celebrate that, right? Like we wanna talk about people, we wanna talk about quote unquote difficult women, right? But not difficult women in the ways in which um, 
you know, they might've been hard to work with or maybe been stubborn, but difficult women and the fact that like everybody's difficult, right? We want to acknowledge that. We want to acknowledge that people were not perfect, um, but to celebrate that, but then to also, you know, take their views into account, even in the 21st century, right? When we're talking about things like suffrage, you want to talk about the impact of racism and suffrage, right? right? Suffrage was not something that was a kumbaya, ebony and ivory kind of moment, Genevieve, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to, and it's, and to teach people, it is possible to both celebrate something has happened, but to also bring certain individuals up to task, right? For their anti-Semitism, for their racism, right? right? For their homophobia. Um, And so I think we can do both of these things at once while critiquing ourselves as educators for the decisions that we make in the classroom. So. Ashley, you just laid out perfectly <laughs> like what <laughs> all of the challenges that are on my mind I'm currently um doing a new course prep for me which is teaching women in art which I've never taught before um and when I was coming to um you know structure the syllabus I was confronting the things that you just laid out right like it can't yeah. just be um this kind of march down like, yes, exactly. A, a, like a, a, a historical lineage of greatness, greatness, yep. right? Um, but that when we do that, we let go of all the nuance and the complexity of these individuals, but also of the times and the historical period exactly. and what's going into the works. So I'm I'm super excited for this conversation because I think we're both on the same page. And I'm sure that many, many listeners are thinking about these things in their courses as well and in their museum practice. And I want to say too that I um, was delighted that Ashley, I mean, first of all, you have the best title in the world. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> I think that museum educators and museum education has so much in common with classroom teaching practice. And I'm, I'm really excited to kind of like see the synergies here and the way that yeah. we're thinking about um, delivering content, content that could be really challenging as well. Um, but exactly. I think maybe a good place to start um, is to go back to that idea of greatness. And um, I think one of the most difficult things about teaching women's history history, especially women in art history, I found, is that tendency, again, to lean into exceptionalism. Um, It's hard to resist that tendency to just kind of like highlight the great women who did break through barriers, because they did. And that is something to celebrate, right? Um, And also that they, you know, these these women artists achieved works that conform to canonical standards of high artistic achievement as well, right? Um, It really forces instructors to think about who is worth teaching and why. And that's a really difficult um, place to be in and a difficult choice to make. Um, so I'm, uh, again, I, I'm kind of struggling with this, but I'd love to see um, how this like factors into your interest in reframing how we think about women's history in the current moment. How are you battling that exceptionalism? Yeah. And I think, you know, I was, I was thinking a little bit more about this topic this morning, actually, before we hopped on. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I mean, of course, this is something that um, a lot of instructors struggle with, right? Um, It's because we want to create space, right, for everyone to be a part of the historical record, right? We want to make space for the first female vice president, and we want to make space for, you know, the person, the Black woman, right, who helped create one of the vaccines, right? We want to make space for these wonderful people. Um, But I think, you know, when we're thinking about history, a lot of that space is, you know, really designated for white women. And that's a problem, right? Because when we're thinking about greatness, we're also thinking about who has the access and privilege to break 
these, um, to break these barriers, right? And a lot of times we also have to take into account race and class. Um, and so the issue, one of the issues I have when thinking about greatness is that, you know, who are we leaving out? Because they necessarily do not have the means or the access to be able to get to the boardroom, to be able to get to the lab, to be able, mm -hmm. right? And understanding that there's even barriers within that, right? So we're not discounting the experiences that, you know, certain women have experienced, but like their foot in the door is not something that happened in a vacuum, you know? And so really sort of making space um, for those conversations too as well. Um, and like you said, Genevieve, right? Making, what are, how do we define great, right? right? What does great mean? What are we taking into consideration is the reason why someone is great, right? Are they great because of the first person to do something? Are they great because of innovation? Um, and like you said, like, are they great because they are taking on this canonical, you know, right. this idea of like what great art is and that's gender, right? This idea of like what, you know, like that article, why, why are there no great women artists, right? Well, it's like, well, it's a really important article, right? It's a really important moment in, in art history. Um, but it's also just like women have been making art for ever you yeah. know they've been a part of they've been art making and craft forever right and I want to make sure that when I'm talking about women's history that I'm not focusing on just the first um or the biggest or the splashiest um I want to sort of put it within this historical timeline where we you know where we're sort of thinking about history sort of through this intersectional lens through the different forms of art making Right. right as well yeah because it makes me think a lot about um how much of women's artistic production was found in like you know quote the minor arts and quote I don't like that yeah term. um but thinking so much uh, or also just about women who were patrons who were collectors yep. like who were curators are how women demonstrated their agency through um you know through fashion through um patronage uh, you know yep. and and fashioning their identity and their, their self-representation. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it can be a challenge though, because part of it, I assume when you work with, with museum patrons, when I'm confronting my students, they want to yeah. learn about the greats. Like course, they want a narrative about the greats. Yeah, of course, so, of course. so how do we get, you know, our, our students or our, our, our visitors or our museum patrons, you know, as engaged in maybe like needlework yeah. and maybe like, how do we, how do we, Co you know, combine this narrative that it's not just about like canonical greatness. And I think even better to question, right? To get our, our students and, and the museum patrons to question that canonical greatness, right? But how do we get them to think about these other like vitally important spaces that women have been holding um, in yeah. the art world over time? Yeah, so I have a, a couple of, of responses to this Genevieve. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've had to do myself is, you know, one of the things is when we're talking about art history, sometimes we have the tendency to look out versus to look around us, right? Mm -hmm. To really see what's happening around us in our spaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our families, right? Um, and sometimes we miss out on things, art making, art makers, right? Who are fabulous. Um, I recently went to, um, 
the National Museum of Women in the Arts, um, which unfortunately is closed for the next two years. Um, but they recently had an exhibition on the artist, um, the African-American artist, um, Sonia Clark. Um, the exhibition was called Tatter, Bristle and Mend. Um, and one of the, um, one of the rooms focused on her series, The Hair Craft Project, um, which were photographs of black hairdressers. And, you know, Clark said that the series demonstrates the importance of hair salons and art galleries as sites of aesthetics, mm -hmm. um, craft, skill, improvisation, and commerce, right? Um, you know, hair salons and hairstylists um, are stewards and hair salons are sort of sites of culture and hairstylists are kind of these stewards of diasporic history, but through hair care, right? So this is an example of something happening around us right. um, versus out. And what really struck me, Genevieve, was I was thinking about like in a pandemic, when these sites are closed or when these people can't use their hands because of how you know, in a pandemic, how viruses are transmitted, like what happens to that work? Mm -hmm. What happens to that craft, right? When people can't touch one another or can't be around one another. So it was like, so I was really sort of thinking about, you know, how can we make these issues and these practices more visible in the museum? And one of the ways we were able to do that was the summer, um, I did a workshop for K through 12 educators and with my colleagues from the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, shout out to Kirsten and Cecilia, um, where the question was, the essential question for the workshop was, you know, what happens when we shift the focus from quote unquote heroes and historical figures to everyday people, mm -hmm. right? And so the idea behind that was, uh, what are the implications when we look to what's happening around us um, what's in our communities, like I said. Um, and we did a close looking of two objects, um, a story quilt by Faith Ringgold, who's one of my favorite artists. Mm -hmm. um, and we also looked at 17th century darning samples or samplers, excuse me, from the Netherlands. And a uh, darning sampler is um, like silk embroidery um, on linen foundation, which showcased like different stitches and patterns at the time, right? So this is what a lot of young women were doing, right? They were creating right. these darning samplers because that's how they showed their creativity, right? They weren't allowed to do many other things, but they could, you know, be involved in craft. Um, and we really sort of brought home that, you know, these particular objects, yes, Faith Ringgold is a very well-known artist, um, but her, the, the media that she, the medium that she chooses, right, is something that comes from a tradition that has been looked down upon, right? With these darning samplers, it's the same thing, right? necessarily people's like oh my grandmother does this right or you know my great aunt has these objects but the thing is to make these objects right to make a story quilt to create these these samplers right they require skill practice and imagination yes. right it requires creativity these objects are beautiful and on top of that, Genevieve, they provide a glimpse into women's lives at a particular time in history, right? And so that's why I love using these sorts of objects because one, you demonstrate, right? We always talk about, you know, art is a skill and you practice and you go to school and, you know, you learn how to become a sculptor and you learn how to paint, right? It's the same thing with a story quilt, right? It's the same thing with embroidery, 
right? It's the same thing with flower arrangements, right? Yeah. Um, and so really sort of bringing that home that one for a long time, women were not allowed to be in art academies, right? So like, what were they doing? They were doing these things, right? They were sewing, they were making flower arrangements, right? And to not downplay these things, you know, I was a facilitator in a workshop this summer, Genevieve, another workshop, sorry, the summer has been just- I know, you've been super busy, <laughs> I, all of us this summer. <laughs> listen, listen, God bless instructors because we are going through it. Yes, um, but, you know, I, uh, I was a facilitator in a leadership program and my session focused on two examples of women in leadership, in my mind, examples of leadership. And um, one example was I was talking to participants about Bunny Mellon um, and her design of the Rose Garden in the White House mm-hmm. during JFK's uh, presidency, right? And the idea that this particular Rose Garden It's beautiful, right? Example of beautification. But it's also an example of how Bunny Mellon understood the power of beauty and hospitality when it came to diplomacy, right? Not just making people feel good, but the importance of diplomacy, right? It's much easier to get someone to do what you want them to do when they are full of food and at ease with their surroundings, right? The phrase wine and dine exists for a reason, right? We invest so much in gardens beautification for a reason because they make people feel a certain way, right? And, you know, yes, we cannot separate the fact that Bunny Mellon was an extremely wealthy white woman and that plays a really big role in what she was able to do and how she had access to the White House in the first place. Um, But, you know, after that session, Genevieve, I received a super harsh comment from one of the participants accusing me of of talking about things they found frivolous. They said, why are we even talking about this woman? She's a rich white woman. Like, why, why are you even bothering? And it's like, yes, like this person, yes, extremely privileged, right? But to say that design, right, to say that what she did was frivolous, frivolous, excuse me, to me is actually misogynistic and also right. a historic, right? And that's, right. and that's what really bothered me about that comic. So I was like, you know, I really need to do a better job in making these things more obvious in terms of why I am talking about these different particular forms of artistic expression and design because they are one of the ways to help us understand women's contributions, right? And to, but to also gain a greater appreciation, Genevieve, for the people in our lives, right? For the, for the women who are doing flower arrangements for funerals. And like, I just, for me, it's a big part of what I want to do is to create a greater appreciation, not for just the Beyonce's and the Kamala Harris's of the world, but to appreciate the people who are around us, who are our loved ones, who are the people we see every day. I, Ashley, I cannot agree with you anymore. You know, I've been thinking a lot about inclusive pedagogy very broadly, but one of the things that I've been thinking about in my teaching practice, um, maybe I'll just like step aside from women in art for a second and just talk about this more broadly, um, is, is just that we need to empower 
students and empower people like museum patrons right to own their cultural capital right yeah. so if they can see like oh you know my grandma has this boat like well that's great that's not yes, something exactly. that, that's not something that you write off right exactly and I've been working with students who who will come in and like doubt themselves and then they tell me they speak like three languages and I'm like what <laughs> like this oh my cultural capital like bring yeah. it you know but they're native speakers they think it's a different thing and so I, I think that you know there, there's such um significant value in what you're saying in terms of inclusive pedagogies as well um, and what this means for our communities right that these are not skills to be um, taken for granted it requires the same degree of imagination creativity and also skill right exactly right these are skill these are things that require skill um so I couldn't agree with you more and I just kind of wanted to amplify that as you were talking yeah and you brought up that point as someone's like oh my grandmother has that I'm like well well celebrate that Right. So exactly. that's, you know, you exactly. have cultural capital to bring into this equation. Um, you know, uh, th- so thank you so much. And boy, did you have a busy summer, <laughs> you know, so, and I, I do think, you know, um, that there's so much synergy here between the kind of work that you're doing in the museum setting and the way, so uh, to kind of go back to the point yeah. I was just making, um, the way that many of us are teaching in the classroom setting, and are setting up both our content and also like our learning environment. And so maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit more about pedagogy specifically and some strategies that we could use to bring these larger goals into actual practice. And so are there any like teaching strategies or are there particular images or exercises, prompts that you might like to share with our listeners? Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about this. Yeah. So there's two, and I don't want to get too deep into them. Um, but when this, you know, podcast is published, I'll be able to share some resources. Um, but you know, the two that really are important to me are culturally responsive teaching. Um, of course, um, Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings is, um, largely responsible, um, for creating that framework, um, plays a really huge role in my approach to instruction, whether it be in the museum or not, um, you know, really sort of understand and a big part of it is just understanding who's in the room. Right. Um, and, um, creating a co-learning environment with them. Right. right. Um, and then of course, um, uh, social emotional learning, um, mm-hmm. which is a really sort of big part of, of my practice too, as well. Um, but you know, I work in a museum, Genevieve, so, <laughs> um, uh, uh, we're at the Smithsonian, we are a huge fan of, um, project zero thinking routines, which were, which were, um, developed by the Harvard graduate school of education, um, which are fabulous facilitation tools um, for close looking at objects in the classroom. Um, so if you don't mind, Genevieve, would you be interested in doing a close looking with me? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Um, so one of my favorite objects um, to, to use, particularly when I'm talking to um audiences in uh, high schools um, and colleges. We have an object by um, the artist Alison Saar um, called Mirror, Mirror, Seeking Inner Negress 2, um, which uh, is an amazing work that we have at the National Portrait Gallery. And one of the reasons why I love using this particular um, object is because it's, it, it throws people for a loop when they look mm-hmm. at it, um, particularly if they don't know the title. 
Um, but since you know the title, you have a little bit of, a, of an idea of sort of what it is that's going on. Um, okay. But for the next few moments, I'm going to uh, ask you a couple of questions, Genevieve. Um, so I'm going to facilitate the thinking routine. It's called See, Think, Wonder. This is like the, um, the godmother of all thinking routines, See, Think, Wonder. And it's super simple. Um, and, there, and Project Zero has a ton of other examples. But this is sort of the one where you sort of like basic um, start, you know, level one, um, close looking. Um, and what I love about this routine is that it really gets people to think about not only what it is that they're looking, um, but how it makes them feel, what questions they have. You know, um, for me, when I ask people to look at objects, Genevieve, I know that what they're going to give me tells me more about them than it does about the object that they're looking at, right? Because we can't look at an object without some sort of reflection of ourselves and our values and yes. what we know, right? Our knowledge. Um, and so with that, uh, let's get to this close looking. So just take a few moments. Um, let's just make sure. Okay. Do you, as you see a woman in a white shift with a hand mirror. <laughs> so I'm taking a moment to just kind of look Yes. So just take a moment to look at this object. And as you're looking through the object, you know, really pay attention to everything, right? The use of color. Um, unfortunately, because we're online, you can't really pay attention to scale. Um, but, uh, you know, if you were in the museum, you'd obviously want to pay attention to um, the scale, pay attention to um, what this person is wearing their body language, the other objects that are in object. If you could see a face, a facial expression. So just take a few moments to sort of take everything in. It's interesting to do this on a podcast where there's yeah. the silence, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. I assure listeners that I'm looking um, closely and intensely. Yeah. And, and it's so funny you mentioned that as you're looking, Genevieve, you know, one of the things that as I've talked to different instructors, particularly instructors that are mostly used to classroom work, you know, that silence over Zoom is something that bothers them really a lot. And, and while I empathize with it, I think, you know, it also could be a really good thing. I think we assume that people, the people we're working with aren't doing anything or not paying attention, but they could just be thinking, they could just be reflecting, right? Um, you know, we never quite know where that silence manifests, but to also revel in the silence, right? To be able right. to take that pause um, because it's, it's, it's earned, right? That, that pause, that, that moment of, of, of rest um, right. is earned and to like not feel bad about it, to embrace it. And also so. there's silence in the, like in the brick and mortar classroom too. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, okay. I feel I've, I've done a, a, a thorough look okay. at this. So the first question is, what do you see? And I'm going to add something on that, right? So not only am I ask you what it is that you see, Genevieve, mm -hmm. but what is the first thing that drew your eye? What was the first thing you noticed when you looked at this object? The first thing I noticed was the mirror and the face mm -hmm. in the mirror. And then, so if <laughs> I, and then it was striking because the face in the mirror had a skin tone that was different from the figure that was holding mm -hmm. the mirror. Exactly. So you my, picked, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, uh, yes. And you've picked up on two really important things um, in this particular object, right? The artist's use of color um, 
And for those um, who are not able to look at this image as we're talking, um, this is a um, woodcut um, that uh, depicts um, a woman. We don't know anything about the woman, um, but her back is turned away from us. She's turned away from us. So we actually don't see her face. Um, and she's holding a hand mirror um, and the, within the hand mirror, there is a face that is reflected that may not necessarily reflect the face that's staring into that mirror. So I think it's really interesting that you're sort of seeing this use of color once again, mm -hmm. um, but also noticing this really stark contrast of what's being reflected um, in this hand mirror. So we've talked about what it is that you see. And then, so we're going to talk about the next one, which is think. So what do you, what do you think's going on in, in this particular object, Genevieve? Well, when I think of, of mirrors and um, I think of the tradition of women gazing into mirrors, right? I, I mm -hmm. tend to think yep. of like, you know, beauty and one who's preparing themselves and their appearance, right? But um, this image gives a, a very different read on the, the function of that mirror. Um, and exactly. so, you know, it kind of inverts that typical like primping in front of the vanity. And instead yep. it's this like peering into like something that reads to me more like identity as opposed yep. to just like, beauty, right? Like looking into this mirror, like who is looking back? Like, who do I actually exactly. see? Um, and I, I, you know, again, different with maybe our students or museum, I have a little bit of art history knowledge. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm uh, comparing it to that like lexicon, but I think so with students, right? Like thinking yep. about maybe exactly. how they engage with mirrors or how they might see it in popular culture or the infamous selfie isn't in a way exactly. kind of interesting mirror, right? We have these mirrors on our cell phone devices in a way, right? All the time. Um, so, so yeah, it's this kind of, to me also because the, the face in this mirror is like, it, it it's a tough, like it, it, it's so abstract and kind of geometric and the eyes exactly. are like very, like, um, they're, they're kind of, there's no pupils they are kind of empty. Yeah. And so kind of looking back, it's kind of this weird lack of a gaze back with the viewer. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I want to circle back to the title of this yeah. object, right? Which is called Mirror, Mirror, Mulata, Seeking Inner Negress 2, right? So for those that are not able to access this image, right, we see this young woman, um, or actually we don't know what age the woman is because we can't see her face and the clothing that this person is wearing is very nondescript. So we have no idea what age this person is. Um, but this, this woman, um, with, with lighter skin is, is holding this hand mirror and this hand mirror within the reflection, it almost looks like, um, an African mask. Um, and so really sort of playing on this title, Mulata Seeking Inner Negress. Um, so there's sort of a play on the title. Um, but like you said, Genevieve, you know, really addressing how we see ourselves, right? Um, or what we want to see reflected back. You know, I'm even thinking about, you know, you talked about selfies, right? How we like have to get the right lighting and then right. you have to like move your phone to make sure that like you don't have double chins <laughs> and like all the things right to make sure that what is reflected back at us is what we is how we see ourselves or want to see ourselves and so it's really interesting that in this particular portrait this person is seeing something completely 
different, right? Right. right. Um, and so you've talked about what you've seen. You've talked about what it makes you think. Um, and then the last question is, what does it make you wonder? So what lingering questions do you have about this object? So um, I'm sticking with the kind of the, the image, the visual, as opposed to it's like objecthood, I think maybe because yeah. we're online and I'm, I'm looking at it in yeah. a kind of like flattened way here. Um, but um, for our listeners, the, the figure has one foot kind of like balanced on yeah. um, her heel and her toes are flexing up. Um, and it's so peculiar to me that I keep coming back to it. And you, do, I mean, the viewer is denied yes the, the figure's face right yes and so part of me just wonders if the figure is about to pivot is about to mm -hmm. kind of like move towards um the viewer and then how would that change right like this yeah. whole entire image right like I I so desperately want to see her face right? yes but it's yes. not really the point of the piece exactly. um, and so it kind of is you know um it's, it's just so clearly preventing the viewer from having yes. that kind of a gaze right the identity is actually still kind of unknown and so I think it's really effective in that way exactly and that is exactly what students like it's the one thing they're like I just want to see her face <laughs> you know like I want yeah. to know like how like what's going on because it seems like we're almost intruding on this really intimate this like really private moment in a lot of ways right like right. we're not really I don't know if we're supposed to be looking right I don't know if we're supposed to be engaged in sort of what's happening in front of us right now um and there's something like you said there's something that's actually kind of powerful that we're not able to interrupt um what's happening in in, in front of us because we can't see um this person's face and it, it's almost it's disarming right to yeah. not we, we're, we're so used to portraiture we see the person's face right exactly. like I see George Washington's wig and nose all the time right, right. when I'm looking right. at objects of George Washington's very big part of looking at him is his wig um and sword and you know everything but with this one you know Alison Sarr is saying no yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't get to be a part of the experience which I think is really powerful when thinking about depictions of of, of women you know yes. And what we do get to see is evocative of a mask, right? Which I think exactly. is also so incredibly telling, right? Like yeah. um, just the concept of a mask here as well, right? In addition to it being evocative of an African mask. So like, what do we really get to see and how that comes back to issues of identity? I can imagine that students like just like eat this up and this would be oh, yeah. for our listeners, like a really, I think, um, productive conversation piece in your class. Um, so I hope that you'll, you'll, Take a look at it too, because I think I will use this to kind of set off, um, you know, uh, conversations about identity because it's exactly. really wrapped up in this in this image. Yeah, and I just want to give a little more information about the object. Sure, sure. Um, just a little more to to encourage folks to use this object in the classroom. And of course, like I said, this is by Al. This is by Allison Saar. Um, and this object, like we sort of talked, we've teased out a little bit. You know, really talks about the idea of that diaspora. So Allison Saar is, you know, this amazing mixed media and sculpture artist. Her objects are all over the world. Um, and, you know, what we're looking at is a really fascinating snapshot of um, the, like we talked about, like the turmoil that can happen when we look at an image of ourselves, right? Um, we see this woman gazing at a reflection um, of herself. But in this instance, you know, we're sort of looking at someone who's dealing with 
her mixed race parentage, right? In a world that really looks at race in sort of fixed terms, right? Things are very black and white. Um, and this object sort of looking at her in the mirror, right? This woman has pale skin and she's looking at this object in a mirror that resembles um, a traditional African wood carving, which sort of contrasts, right? With her pale skin color. Um, and of course, you know, Sar's use of the sort of different flesh tones between what's in the mirror and what we see with the sitter, um, you know, really relates to this term mulata, which she uses in the title. Um, and really refers to SARS mixed racial heritage, right? Who, you know, growing up, she was very conscious of the African-American side of her ancestry, um, but struggled um, because she was perceived as being or looking white, um, which is something that she already struggled with for a long time. And I think this work really sort of speaks to that particular experience. Um, and so I think particularly in 2021, right? I think this is something that, you know, would be really, really interesting um, for students to be thinking about, so. Thank you, Ashley. And can I just ask, um, just for maybe our listeners' benefit, could you just quickly um, reiterate the three questions, the three prompts that you gave sure me? Sure thing. So C, think wonder. C, what is it that you see? Or what do you notice, right? What draws you to the object? think, what does this object make you think, right? How does it, what comes up for you when you look at this object? And then wonder, what do you wonder? Are there any lingering questions? Um, is there something that's missing that you'd love to learn more about? So those are the three questions. Thank you. I wanted to just kind of like have them there like in, in quick succession <laughs> because they, I think that, um, and full disclosure to our listeners, I was a museum educator before returning back into the classroom. So Ashley and I are like vibing on the museum education stuff. Um, yes. But I, I tend to use so much of it in my classroom because um, these are wonderful quick writing prompts. These are exactly. wonderful things that you put, exactly. you put, put it on discussion board and a forum. They're, they're accessible. They're good entry points into Precisely. what could potentially be like really difficult conversations. Like if you approach this same piece and we're like, today we're going to have a conversation about, you know, race relations and identity. And that, like, if you, but if you get there, if you build to it through exactly. observations, um, it, how, how much more engaging and inclusive could that be? Right. So I really love yeah. those questions. So thank you for repeating them. Um, I do have like one more kind of like lingering question here that of I, course, feel like I, I have to ask, um, which is because I just had this experience of doing this visual analysis, like in 2d on my computer, yeah. <laughs> it's, making, it's making me think about just how difficult it must've been to do this work in the virtual environment. Um, 2021 to 2022 is still proving to be a challenging year, the yes, year of uncertainty. I feel like I say the word uncertainty every single day. Um, the pandemic stretches on, it's challenging public safety. Um, I, I'm, a lot of us are wondering how in the physical classroom, can we have students in group work? Can we not? How do we social distance, right? Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about how your museum handled doing this education uh, work over the last year and a half. How did you keep patrons engaged virtually? Um, and I know that some of us might still be doing either like hybrid teaching in the classroom or doing flex teaching. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question, Genevieve. And I think, you know, my background is I've been teaching online since 2016. Um, So when I had to pivot to digital, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a huge leap because I'm actually more used to teaching online than I am teaching in a physical classroom. Um, But I mean, it doesn't mean it wasn't a challenge, right? And it definitely was a challenge for the Smithsonian um, to to pivot. But, you know, uh, I think we've, especially the National Portrait Gallery, I think we've done a really fine job. Um, Our approach was to mainly um, translate our evergreen programs, the programs that, you know, were monthly or bi-monthly in the museum, sort of transferring those over to digital. Um, So for instance, I'm a part of um, our program called Introducing, which is actually our story time program um, Mm -hmm. for the little ones, um, which is super fun. Um, we have, um, uh, English language learners program called conversation circles, which is now online. Um, we have a crafts and arts and crafts program called open studio, um, which we do live on Facebook. Um, you know, people can sign up through Eventbrite. Um, I actually have a book club with the DC public library. Um, called Art Afterwards, um, which is now online. We have a virtual writing hour program, which is actually a virtual writing hour program is way more popular online than it ever was um, when it was held in the museum. And I think one of the reasons why Mm -hmm. is that for a lot of our programs, our audience has expanded because that means that more people who can't come to DC, right? Um, or who are night owls in, in, in the UK. We have a lot of folks from Europe and um, we've even had folks from India and folks from Latin America and folks from all over the country be more involved in our programming because they can participate because it is online. Um, that's not to say that, you know, the folks who have issues with, with the internet, you know, don't have, don't have problems, right? Participating in our programs. We, we still are very cognizant of, of that issue. Um, but I think, you know, we've, we've been really excited by the enthusiasm that we've seen nationally and internationally um, with our, our programs. And I think, you know, one of the things that really became important to us was thinking about this idea of social justice um, mm-hmm. and how we can do a better job in addressing sort of what's happening right now. Um, what's happening outside of the museum, what's happening in DC, what's happening in America. And I think, you know, one of our programs, which is called, or one of our new programs called um, In Dialogue, um, Objects and Social Justice, where we work with different um, educators from across the Smithsonian, you know, really addresses that, right? Where we talk about objects in our collection that relate to a particular subject. Um, So for instance, actually, we just had a program um, earlier in August where we talked about multiraciality, um, and it was a partnership between the National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, um, where they had this really in-depth and sometimes intense conversation um, about multiraciality in America, particularly um, in terms of the Asian American experience. So I think, you know, really trying to figure out how our collections, rather than, you know, thinking about, you know, oh, what do we want to talk about? we've switched it, right, to what do we need to talk about? Like, what is happening right now that we need to address? And because I work in a museum, I have a lot more flexibility than someone who works at a university, right? And I really want to acknowledge that. Um, But I think, you know, thinking about what's happening with CRT across the country right now, 
presents a really interesting problem for many of us, including museum educators, right? Because a part of our job is supporting K-12 educators, supporting educators in the academy. Um, and so, you know, right now we're sort of trying to figure out, you know, how do we do that when all, the, when people are, you know, literally passing, you know, laws and, and, yeah. and, and other things, right? So how do we figure out in this sort of new hybrid model, um, because that's what it's going to be for a long time, to be honest, right? This sort of hybrid model or, or digital model, um, you know, how can we um, support teachers in, in that particular way that are struggling um, to be able to provide inclusive content yeah. um, to their students? Well, thank you, Ashley. Um, this conversation, I think, has we still have a lot more to talk about. And I think <laughs> that, um, you know, it's getting you to, to think more deeply about maybe some um, specific pedagogical strategies, but also ways that we need to really expand this conversation when we're thinking about women's history. So mm -hmm. um, I would um, love for us to continue the conversation with a part two. I hope that listeners sure. will join us. Thank you, Ashley, so much Thank for you. sharing all your wisdom. And let's continue the conversation in our um, next installment.